I think, before we go around killing people, we had better make death here of our evidence. Judge Kavanaugh, are you ready to begin? Oh, hell yeah. Hold on a sec. I'm going to get me um, a beer. Did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer, uh, my friends and I. PJ or Tobin or Squeak. You want a beer? I liked beer. Still like beer. There was a Peter. He could paint an entire apartment in one afternoon, two coats! A riot is an ugly thing. And I think that it is just about time that we had one! Carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Welcome to technically the second episode of the New Worlders podcast. Um, even though it's there were like four episodes <laughs> on the original AK forty seven, and then when I reposted on its own, there were two. But I guess technically this is the second episode. So this is Aaron Gleason. I'm Alan Wells, and we're gonna get drunk and talk about conservatism. Yeah. So do you want to talk about a, a little bit about what we're drinking to yeah, begin with? Are, I think that's our tradition uh, now, as we talk about what we're drinking. Yeah, we're supposed to have a we're supposed to have a cocktail. Last time we really uh, screwed up because we was supposed to be gin and tonics, and but we didn't have ice. No, um, so, so it became gin with a little bit of vermouth in it. So. Yes. So what are we drinking? We are drinking White Russians. And why are we drinking White Russians? This is in honor of the Mueller report being released. <laughs> this was actually Aaron's idea, and as soon as he texted it to me, I was like, that is excellent, we need to do that. <laughs> but then I, I, I suggested we should have a cocktail called Collusion that's just a glass of water. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It could have been a glass of water, or it could have been, like, just pure grain alcohol. <laughs> Since that's basically what it did yeah. to the minds of the left. Because it'll just kill brain cells. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, the Mueller report came down. And, I mean, it's still not public. And it's probably never really going to be public. Andy McCarthy's analysis has just been amazing on his podcast. And his thing was really... It's, I think almost everyone feels like the best thing to do is release the whole thing completely unredacted which they probably will not be able to do. Why don't you think they'll be able to do that? Because there's grand jury stuff in there. Oh. So they have to yeah. get... It's, yeah. It, there are probably, it's, probably like a dozen government agencies that would need to sign off on have, releasing it unredacted, right? Cause, well, I think they basically have to like pass a bill that lets it be completely unredacted. Oh, wow. Which I, I just... Here's the thing. I don't understand the grand jury issue stuff, but... If you really want to just put this in the past, that would be the best thing to do. Because any part, like McCarthy was saying, any part that is redacted, everyone's going to be like, that's where it is. That's the smoking gun. Yep. It's under those words. And then if you, but then he was like, but here's the thing. If you do release it completely unredacted, they're still going to claim that there was some kind of cover up. Yeah. At some point. You're damned if you do, damned if yeah. you don't. Yeah. So, 
he he's like yeah just really as much as you can release the whole thing but it's still not going to solve the problem so i mean because the real problem in all this is the media just does not care about you know they're not virtuous that's yeah that's the issue is they don't yeah they 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 don't have they don't primarily care about the virtue of their profession as a profession yeah as separable from their political commitments and that goes i mean that goes for elements on the right as well i mean fox oh, yeah. news would fall under that condemn, condemnation I mean, like, as well in a lot of cases but the only reason fox news exists is because there wasn't any way to counter the mainstream leftist media so it's kind of amazing that Fox News is not as crazy um, as it could be. I mean, it could no, be sure, yeah. worse. Yeah, it could be worse. But, yeah, it's just, it's sad. Because it's like someone posted a thing the other day on Facebook from a publication I'd never heard of, the Christian Post. Oh, I've heard, yeah. And I've heard uh, of it before. he, this was, this is like six years old. And he was talking about how. he outlined so the fourth estate was a term invented by edmund burke i think oh was it yeah that's what the guy claimed that would be that would be cool if that was the case yeah because he said that there were there were four estates there was the king the commons uh would be the king the lords the commons yes and and the fourth estate was the press Hmm. and um jonah goldberg's been making that point for a while now that the press that the political parties in this country are basically dead and literally what's replaced them is news media outlets so uh, yeah you were talking to me about yeah. that you made that point last time we were chit-chatting about this yeah and this guy basically made the same point like six years ago that these things have he, he made it in a little less nuanced way he basically just said they become so subsumed with their political interests that they're not acting like the fourth estate anymore. Does that mean that they're they're actually like the locus of the political parties, or that does that just mean they're a wing of the political parties? Because I mean, to say that the news media is like the political parties, <clears throat> that would mean like the the main decision makers are in the media, right? But I don't think that's the case. That's what Jonah thinks. He thinks the main decision makers are the me- are well, in the media. you remember when Obama was elected? Uh, MSNBC basically congratulated themselves for getting their guy elected. I, d- I actually didn't see that one. Oh, okay. Well, that was like a thing they did back in the day. Wow. And, yeah. They just were overt about it. Basically. I mean, they decide... I mean, I don't know, because I don't know how much they, they consider themselves... It, I don't think it's conscious, so it's not... It, it wouldn't be... It, it, it would be more like they're a wing of the party, but they kind of are basically making the decisions. So, like, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's in trouble for the touching now finally it's amazing to me that it's taken in this long I yeah, I'm, I'm surprised i'm surprised it didn't become an issue when the me too movement was at its height because there's it's been a running joke for a while about his touchiness i mean well, there's my my favorite photos have you seen the one of him with the biker chip chick on his lap and the he i don't know even know where he so. is but he's sitting at a table and there's a biker chick on his lap <laughs> and he's like whispering in her ear oh my and this God. biker guy is sitting right next to him just looking at him like he wants to like slit his throat I, 
The guy, I mean, this is why I don't think he actually has ever done anything, is because nothing did happen during Me Too. No one said it. I mean, because what the immediate response from so many people is, well, they were protecting Biden. Me Too was a phenomenon of the left. Yeah. Very few people on the right were affected by Me Too. It was almost entirely Hollywood yeah. and some politicians on the left. Yeah. And so I, if he had done anything, I don't see how he survives. Me too. I yeah. mean, Alyssa Milano is like the first... She is just so stupid, man. But she was. She's I've like seen the some first of your interaction, interacting with her tweets on uh, on oh Twitter. Oh my god, she's such an idiot. Did she? Did she? Didn't she actually quote like a passage from the Gospel of John, like yeah. supporting like abortion rights? Yeah, she said oh she supported god. it by saying something about when Jesus talks about I have. Uh, how can I tell you of heavenly things when I yeah. speak of earthly things? That's what I saw. You you replied to that. Yeah, and you have not understood. And her point, literally, her point. Because she says, I believe in God. Her point is literally that God's ways are inscrutable. So they don't matter. That's that, That's literally what she meant. It's wow. not possible to know what God want, what God believes about abortion. It doesn't matter what God believes about abortion. That's not relevant. Yeah. It, all you have to do is look at a freaking ultrasound yeah. to know that this thing is alive. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it actually does matter what you believe about God in this. But the truth well, is... Well, I mean, though... It does, but not nece- uh, not necessarily. Or you wouldn't have you wouldn't have like groups like Atheists for Life and things like. I mean, there's We're the truth right. of the matter is is kind of immediate. Like it's just it, it, people who look yeah, at it. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it's it's like we were designed to come to this conclusion. Yeah. So I do. Th- I think Atheists for Life are actually kind of being inconsistent, but you know, really. Yeah, I don't. See, I always thought I always thought like like Christopher Hitchens' anti-abortion view. I always thought was pretty consistent with what's his. Well, he just thought he thought um, it's been a while since I since I like read his comments on it. But he was he was I don't know if he was anti-abortion like across the board, but he definitely was anti-abortion like pretty after a, a point pretty early in the pregnancy. Yeah, and because he thought, I mean, he, his. He, his big thing was like uh, like right like rights of the individual and he thought once it could be identified as an individual human organism then yeah. you're not allowed to do whatever you want to it as far as i remember but well yeah because yeah, sam harris's deal is the pain threshold so as soon as we know it experiences pain yeah. it's wrong to do any that's essentially why he's a vegetarian yeah although that could be that itself is is tricky because that could be a moving goalpost because yeah as science progresses, we could just... Yeah. They just... I yeah. just read something. I, di- I didn't read the actual article, but I just saw a headline that said that um, researchers have now think that babies experience pain much more intensely than we do. Huh. And I'm wondering if that... They're talking about newborns, but I'm wondering if that backtracks into the womb, which actually, if you think about it, is pretty terrible in the context of abortion because... Yeah. It, you know, once they are able to feel pain, like a dismemberment abortion can be excruciating in a way that we can't even fathom. But that's that's what I, I've never understood the abortion methods in this country. Like Hitchens' position definitely is not a pro-life position, but that's not that strange in Europe. Their laws, oh are yeah, extremely strict. Yeah, to get to get an abortion after the twenty-fourth week in most of Western Europe, you need to jump through quite a few hoops like it involving like like court orders and things like that like they just they have a very yeah 
we have a, a much more conservative view than the American left does. Like the American left would probably not countenance it if it existed in our context. Yeah, I think it depends on. It clearly depends on the sort of the leftist you're talking to, because a lot of them do find the whole thing abhorrent. But I mean, this is part of like the whole. <clears throat> well, and even like staying on the European subject for a second. If you look at the stats of their abortions, most of them are ridiculously early oh, in yeah. Europe. Like, like, like within a few weeks? Yeah, very, very early. Yeah. And the truth is, it's just, it sounds barbaric from someone who grew up in the Christian tradition, but it it just does not seem that bad. You know? No, yeah, I can, I can understand. It really, like... I mean, I remember the first day I was sort of confronted with the sort of emotional logic of some of this stuff. I was in an ethics class, and Scott Ray was talking to us about uh, um, embryo adoption and how there there are all these people that actually do embryo adoption with no intention of uh, bringing the embryos to, you know, gestate and... So are they adopting adopting them just to make sure they're not destroyed? Yeah, basically. By clinics? Uh-huh. Yeah, and then immediately I was like, "Yeah, this is exactly why we're losing on this debate because the quote unquote optics we're not actually not losing on this debate. We're actually we've been winning uh, in the court of public appeal for a while, but um, especially at the cultural level, you know, it's just it's really hard to care about a frozen embryo." Yeah. You know? But the implications of it are kind of immediate because it's like, if Jesus came back, like, tomorrow, I guess all those embryos would suddenly be, like... Persons. Embodied whatever, I don't know, 30, 30, whatever age, you know, you get made in the resurrection, I don't know. But, um... And then it was is it, just a really weird thing to try to think of. Yeah, I think the other thing that makes it weird too is just thinking about the millions of them that exist compared to. I mean, it probably yeah. it probably pales in comparison to the number of abortions per year. Yeah, of just the number of fertilized embryos that are discarded or just that are sitting in freezer somewhere. Yeah, it could be it could be millions and millions of what we consider to be persons. Yeah, um, just in, in basically in cryogenic. In, in a cryogenic state yeah it's very strange and this is so I just I wrote the did you see Unplanned no I didn't see it so I wrote this thing about it and then I listened to the book well I listened to the book and then I wrote this thing about it but towards the end I, I say this thing where I'm like look the truth is calling abortion murder doesn't really encapsulate the the full problem that abortion represents because the problem it represents isn't really mur- like we've been killing people as part of like human existence for a long time. The death puts people to death. The the death. The state. <laughs> the state puts people to death. You know. I'm sure there's some we, guy named Steph who's put somebody to death at some point. Yeah, probably. We we put you know Stefan to death, Stephen <laughs> to death. You know, I mean, hu- human activity involves a, like a lot of death, and some of these aren't all tragedies some of this is actually stuff we do self-defense wars some of these things are things we do intentionally and it's like it's really not that hard to buy 
that because this is when the debate really changed on the left was about 10 15 years ago <clears throat> when they started talking about it as this brutal horrible reality that was just part of the moral universe of a modern woman you know it's a bad thing everybody hates it oh but the safe legal and rare yeah you language. gotta you yeah. gotta be an adult about it you know it's like sometimes you're just gonna need to abort that baby because you can't you can't raise it right now and it's like as soon as they acknowledge the fact that it's not a nice thing you lose a lot of power yeah in your rhetoric and that's the problem the problem is messing with stuff that's not supposed to be messed with it's malcolm you know <laughs> it's it's ian malcolm in jurassic park oh yeah you know which you call, call discovery i call the rape of the natural world yeah you know and it's just like this is the real problem the real problem is that these are processes that we've spent a long time actually trying to help because like infant mortality used to be a massive yeah. problem and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep babies alive and now we're killing them yeah yeah that's that's, that's a good point that makes me think of you know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the problem in, in a lot of in a lot of um, individual cases where, like, especially like administrative law um, is needed, is because people aren't virtuous. And so, what I think about in the context of that is, um, I think it's an abolition of man. Lewis has yeah. the point where he talks about he, it's really a profound point, but he he says the, the magical worldview and the scientific worldview are twins kind of born of the same impulse and the impulse is to, to, to control the world around us whereas the older yeah. tradition of knowledge and virtue was you find out what the world is like and you conform yourself to it mm, and yeah. so that to me goes into what you're talking about is the real tragedy is is that this is a natural process that is is an essential element of of human life and that we believe was created by god to be that way and we're mm. actively working against it and that that's the real tragedy yeah yeah, that's interesting. Is that, I mean, that's mostly what that hideous strength is about, right? Yeah, that hideous strength really is just the abolition of man put into a fiction format. Yeah. Like, those two books should be read together. I, and I, when people haven't read them, I tell them, I tell them, read that, the abolition of man and then read that hideous strength because you'll really understand what's going on in that hideous strength once you read abolition of man. Yeah. And I need to go on the record as saying I hate that hideous strength. <laughs> but I He love, loves Lewis. But I love the abolition of man. Actually, I kind of hate The Abolition of Man, too. That is one of the most depressing books. It's depressing, but it's it's a really it's really prophetic, good. Yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. But yeah, well, that, might, that might be why that that might be why you hate that hideous strength because that hideous strength really kind of just feels like Lewis was trying to novelize The Abolition of Man. And I don't know, I don't even know what the the like publication dates are on the two books. I just know that they're thematically related, but it could be that Lewis was wanted to make his case stronger by putting it into a fiction format i don't know i mean i just i don't feel like it's a novel it feels like a it's so preachy like i don't know dude I just, it, I just yeah i mean i can it. see how it could be considered pretty didactic but uh so are paralanders paralanders pretty preachy as well and yeah, so it, i mean out of the silent the whole the whole series is preachy out of the silent planet is just such a good sci-fi story though yeah like, so much of that it's story almost like, it's almost like a novella though it's not there's not much neither i mean yeah the first two are not that long 
The, that Hideous Strength feels more like a novel for the first hundred pages or so because it's literally just the story of this professor and his sort of obsessing about like getting inside. In the inner circle. Yeah, you know. and then it gets so weird, like so quick because like Merlin shows up and then there's... Oh, that's what I... That's the like, thing I, It's <coughs> so strange. That's the thing I love about it is it's, a, it's kind of an intersection between sci-fi like apocalyptic literature and Arthurian legend and it's I don't know of anything else that is an intersection between those three things it just yeah to me it really seemed a lot more like a work of fantasy and the first two were more the the first two are not hard science fiction at all yeah but they feel more like science fiction and yeah, I think that's a fair point. It definitely well, the last. I would de- I would honestly describe the last work as a work of fantasy, not science fiction. Well, and he because he starts it off with a note about the Numenorians. He's oh, that's like, right, and he spells it differently than the way you, Tolkien yeah, spells it. Yeah, and he says is, if you want to learn more about these people, you can go read the books of my friend J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. So technically, that he is strength is a part of Tolkien's Legendarium, which I'm sure Tolkien would have taken a dump on. <laughs> Well, he might have been okay with that hideous strength because it wasn't maybe. an allegory, but um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it does. It does mention Numenor in it, and it's funny because it spells it because well, Lord of the Rings hadn't been published yet when that hideous strength was published, so Lewis had only heard oh. the name and the and Inklings meeting, so he didn't know how to spell it. Wouldn't that note be later then, anyway? No, I don't think it is. Really? He spells it. I remember this explicitly. Then what is I, he referring to? The Hobbit. They didn't get brought up in The Hobbit. No, they didn't. He He's referring to, he must have heard early drafts of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Inklings meetings because he spells Numenor N-U-M-I-N-O-R, which is not See, how Tolkien I, spells it. I love that you didn't even remember there was a note, and now you remember how the note was spelled. But my problem is that isn't he referring the reader to works of Tolkien? No, not if I don't remember the note you're talking about. I remember the. We the could just to, grab it off your shelf and look. Yeah, that's I don't, true. Like, we're not going to do that kind of crap on this. <laughs> we're not going to Google things. We're going to yeah. revel in our own ignorance. Yep. Um, anyway, so he's not referring them to. No, from what I remember, the the reference to Numenor is actually in the text. It's not in a note. It's in. Oh, in, in uh, I thought I'm. In the context of one of the conversations on at St. Anne's on the Hill, which is that little kind of Benopt enclave that that um, Ransom kind of gathers around himself, they're talking about something, yeah. and one of the characters says something. I think it's Ransom himself says something about Numenor. Well, now I um, really do want to look, because I'm pretty sure that there's, at least in later editions, that actually has a note to readers at the beginning. That could be the case. I just don't remember. I oh. tend to, I tend to skip introductory material and books like that, so... In any case, um, I tend to just skip books like that. In any case, um, I don't remember how we started talking. Oh, like abolition of man and that stuff. Well, we were talking. You were talking about the yeah, tragedy of abortion nature. being that, that you're actively working against a natural process that we've yeah. actually the the progress of man has largely been trying to preserve yeah. and and make safer. Yeah, to help a a natural process that in its you know undeveloped state is pretty brutal. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, and like, <clears throat> well, and that's kind of what we we're talking about before. Thomas Sowell talks about this the unconstrained versus the constrained vision. And the magic is a really good word to use for that because, you know, it is weird when you think about magic now. 
Well, mm-hmm. so b- before we get onto that, why don't you flesh out the the difference between the constrained and the unconstrained? Yeah, the tragic. So it's basically the same thing you were saying before. It's you know Stoicism and Christianity and Judaism and sort of even honestly Buddhism. Like most sort of traditional ethical systems, approach the world as if not not as if the world is your master but as if the world is not a thing to be mastered, you are a thing to be mastered within the world. Hmm. And you said that really succinctly a few minutes ago, but that's the that's the essential difference. I actually like the way you just phrased it better than the way I phrased it. Uh-huh. I'll have to remember that, but... Thank you. Um, but, I mean, that's sort of like, at some point tonight, we need to talk about Buddhism. But, like, that's sort of what, for me, practicing, like, contemplative stuff and sort of like the whole church calendar you know all of the christian disciplines these things have to do with self-mastery they're not yeah. mastering the world they're technology for mastering yourself in fact the, the fact that the, the church calendar conforms to um cycles of of the of the year you yeah. know like some people will tell you that has to do with magic or something like that. And maybe it did in some of the proto-pagan forms. You know, maybe Oh, yeah, like they, they thought that through <clears throat> ritual they were actually encouraging, like, yeah. the sun to come back and, like, the days to lengthen and things <laughs> like that. Yeah, for all, for you know, for all I know. Honestly, I don't know if... I honestly don't think the pagans probably even thought that way. I don't think it's really natural to believe that you have control over any of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think that's actually one of the problems, like, in the Divine Council worldview, where you have the, the watchers coming down and messing with stuff. I think they're sort of the proto-progressives. Like, literally. Oh, yeah. They come down and they give technology to man before they're, quote-unquote, ready for it. It's almost yeah. like, you know, if you want to have, like, an ancient aliens approach to it, it's literally Star Trek's... Um, What's Star Trek's uh, prime directive? Oh, or, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, you're like, don't interfere in the natural development of cultures. Yeah, of so. More, of more simple, simple cultures or something like I don't remember exactly. Well, and that's how the whole, the whole plot of First Contact, which is a fantastic science fiction film. First, uh, First Contact is, which one is that? That's, that's, that's the, the next f- generation film, but which one is that? The, is it the second? I think it's the second What's one. going on in that one? I that's the one where they go back in time. Oh, to the guy who's inventing the uh, yeah. in the warp engine or the impulse engine. Yeah, because they have to help him like get... Because you're not allowed to fear in pre-hyperspace you know, or whatever, societies, whatever yeah. they call it. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's actually pre-hyperspace societies. I think that's, that's, the, that's the linchpin. Hyperspace is the word they use in Star Trek? Uh, uh, not hyperspace, but pre-warp society. Yeah, that's, that's right. It. Warp. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hyperspace is Star Wars, I think. Yeah, it's all the same Star thing. Star Wars. It's really not Star Wars, <laughs> dude. Star Wars's view of like space travel is so weird. It's like it's very anti-scientific because hyperspace. Does that really surprise you? Though? No, no, no. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense of like Lucas and all that stuff. But that's that's what I'm saying. They're really not the same thing. It's like huh. in Star Trek, there's like math and stuff that's supposed to like account because what they do is they enter like whatever the well. They're actually the reason called a warp drive because it's actually it's bending space time under the ship. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah, they're actually how a warp. They're literally passing through without experiencing any of the effects of yeah time and space and whatever. And in Star Wars, it's something really. There's apparently there's explanations that that. 
I guess no one really understands how their hyperdrives work. Hmm. And there's there's an there's some theory that it actually has something to do with connecting to the force. And Interesting. So they go into like this other place, like another dimension. Yeah, which you know kind of destroys the whole parsecs thing with the Kessel Run. Is the whole the explanation for that is that the Falcon's computer is able to calculate the, the jump, shortest, yeah, the shortest distance, right? Yeah, because a parsec is not time; it's, it's distance. It's, although yeah. George Lucas didn't know that, <laughs> but he's been lying about it ever since. But yeah, yeah he didn't know that when he wrote that line. He's anyway, um, but. Yeah, so there's this sense because I actually, I mean, my view of the fall on some level too is that like, I just don't understand why God would put humans in a garden with because the tree that causes the trouble is the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is not wrong. God has the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, it's it's just something a child doesn't have. Yeah, exactly. And to me, it seems pretty clear. Well. I don't think it seemed this clear to me until I kind of encountered Eastern Orthodoxy. But the whole thing seems set up for deification on some level, you know? They grow in virtue. Eventually, they eat of both trees. They eat of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they're not ready for it yet. Yeah. So what happens? A spirit being comes and interferes and gets them to do what God doesn't want them to do. And that's exactly what the Watchers do. That's what, you know... The, product, yeah. the Nephilim, all that junk. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Samuel Johnson's quip, which I love so much, that the first wig was the devil. <laughs> oh, dude. I that, love that so much. That makes perfect sense, it too. It does. Yeah, that's like so fitting for what we were just talking about. So, I mean, in, in the modern context, you could say the first progressive was the devil. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Which, it's funny, because if you think about it in the context <laughs> of, of the, the, the exegesis, you just kind of... Um, expounded on God's a progressive too but he's a progressive in a different he's a different way right yeah. we're meant to progress yeah but we're meant to progress via virtue and growth and like life with God and and well yeah knowledge and that, of knowledge of reality not manipulating reality yeah yeah that's right well and that's the thing conservatism and progressivism actually are not um oppositional things. No, progressivism and traditionalism are the opposites, right? I mean, traditionalism is understood as tradition for tradition's sake, right? Sure. Well, I mean, and it depends on what you mean by progressive. If by progressive you mean, you know, like, uh, so Burke, you know, Burke's whole thing is reform, um, reform to conserve, conserve, conserve to reform, and it's the management of change. Change is inevitable that will happen. Yeah, exactly. You just need to manage it well. The progressive, Prudentially, right? Isn't prudence yes. the, the prime virtue of a statesman in Burke, right? Yes, and so what is that doing? I, he oh, he probably, sees, he probably sees a bug. Yeah, that thing up high, yeah. Yeah, that's our cats do that too. Yeah, he loves, he loves chasing bugs. Um, if you just say the word bug, he... Really? up and comes into the room that's yeah. funny um but yeah so yeah you have to manage change and it also needs to be driven by like natural factors so like it can't be artificial yeah it can't just be like we're gonna do this just because like that's not the way humans work that's what makes the french revolution so awful 
because the change is being foisted rather than what happens in the American Revolution, which is fundamentally an act of separation. Yeah. That was really pretty organic. I mean, it yeah. was... It That's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting describing it as fundamentally an act of separation because they all... I mean, nothing really immediately changed in the way that the colonies govern themselves. No. They already had those those governments. It was me- merely a matter of breaking ties with the yeah. crown. Yeah. And, I mean, the only reason that they wanted to break... You know, this this actually shows just how English they were because they didn't believe they were breaking with Parliament or any so-called elected officials in England. They were breaking with the king because the king wouldn't do what they want. The king wouldn't do what they asked. Which was do you think that was because? Do you think I mean you because you read you read the the Royalist Revolution? I've only read, read like the first third. Okay, because I wonder. I wonder because I mean, obviously, the a lot of their a lot of the um, invective of of the American revolutionaries is directed at the king. Yeah. But the impression I get from guys on the side of like the Royalist Revolution argument is that they're doing that because the the king wasn't doing wasn't being a king, yep. and Parliament was really the one that was passing all these terrible yep. acts. And what's interesting about that is. I'm pretty, and I haven't, I haven't verified this, but I'm pretty sure George III was a Whig, in sympathy. Obviously, the king that had might, to kind yeah, of, that might be. So, which that that fascinates me because that means he was the you know uh, 18th century equivalent of a progressive. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a conservative, and I wonder if if the, if they had had a more conservative king who, because I mean the argument in the Royalist Revolution right is that the they were appealing to their ancient rights as Englishmen against what parliament was doing right yeah so the the royal he his claim is that the patriots were royalists they believed that see there's this whole argument that isn't even easily resolved i've never seen anyone resolve this very simply as to whether or not parliament even had the right to tax colonies interesting burke thought they did and yet he still sided with the revolution yeah. So he actually thought that Parliament had the ability to do what they were doing. The colonists did not. So the colonists believed, and the main way that they wanted the king to operate was through the um, was through the veto power. So they didn't. They weren't like these advocates of like a highly active yeah. monarchy. But George only wanted to be a pure executive. Yeah. So la- and the last time the veto power was used was by Queen Anne, I think, in the early 1700s. And I don't think it's been used since, even though technically the monarch still has it. Well, that's what they can withhold. It's, with, it's not called a veto, though. It's technically called withholding royal assent. Oh, okay. Um, but they can technically still do it, although. If you did it in a modern context, it would create a constitutional crisis in the UK. But even though the the monarchy technically still has that power, yeah, it would it would it would have, it would cause a constitutional crisis simply because of the way that I think the populace would react to it. Because that's to me that was one of the most fascinating things about watching the Crown was actually seeing her. I've always been taught as an American that the you know the monarchy in England has been a figurehead for so long, no one even really knows why it still exists. And in the crown, it's really clear. She actually has to like sign things and she asked, she's in, she's actually consulted about decisions. The main thing though, it seems is though they, you know, 
they have more of a constraining influence on her than she has on them. Like when Churchill yeah. comes and tells her she can't, her sister can't marry. Oh yeah, yeah. So whoever. although when she berates Churchill for not informing her that he was like out of commission, that that's that's a pretty awesome scene. You you know the yeah thing I'm she's about, right? so Claire Foy is so good. Yeah, she's really good. Um, I love that show. That's I think that actually might be my favorite show. Like period. Yeah, it's really good. But like, so what's interesting about all that is that the way that we're taught the the revolution is that it had to do with the tyranny of a king and technically that's true because he wasn't acting like a king he was being a pure executive so it was the tyranny of uh, parliament yeah and i emailed that's interesting yeah so he was just he was just executing parliament's will yeah instead of being an independent power to balance the influence of parliament. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially like a repudiation of Montesquieu on some level, too. That's super interesting because if that's the case, then the king was acting in the exact way that John Locke wants the executive to act in oh, his really? political theory. Yeah, he thinks he thinks the and it, this is the way it works in parliament. The executive power is just a subset of the legislative power. It's like the legislature as a whole because of a for efficiency reasons hands over the executive power mm. to a smaller body usually one person mm -hmm. and that's super interesting because of you know the the kind of traditionally understood locking influence on the founders mm. but at the same time if that's what they were reacting to they were reacting to a locking scheme which wouldn't be that surprising if if George III was actually a Whig because the Whigs were in the tradition of Locke so well, and see, that's one of my, once I started reading the book, that became one of my biggest problems with the way people like Ben Shapiro talk about executive overreach. Because the way that they talk about, that, now there's a lot of problems with, exe with executive overreach. I just published a blog post today called Repeal the 22nd Amendment. Because you published that on New Worlders? Or? I published it on everything. Oh, okay. It's not I'll very I'll long. Read it. I love yeah, the twenty. The, you said the repeal the twenty third. Yeah. Oh yeah, the tw no, the twenty second. Twenty second. Yeah. So that which one's the twenty second? Because Orestes Brownson said it's mostly just. I think the twenty third should be repealed. Too, that's but, senators, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's every all the conservatives <laughs> think that now. But um, Orestes Brownson said right after the Civil War, and this is the main reason I got interested in reading him is because Kirk Kirk mentioned this thing about. Uh, the demo the democracy of humanism that brownson thought was the biggest threat coming to the nation after the civil war which he contrasted with the democracy of territory dem, dem yeah it's and i guess oh that's interesting so brownson has this really like really nuanced interesting view of the american republic and the cause of the Civil War that I I really think I just I can't believe it's not available in an audio format somewhere. Interesting. And I, so I think I'm just going to read it and do it for yeah. I mean, he was, he was an interesting guy. I mean, being a Roman Catholic in the 19th century, I mean, he converted to Roman Catholicism. Yeah. So that that in of itself makes him pretty weird. Well, but what's so fascinating is he he didn't like he thought that that. This, this humanism worldview, and he just calls it humanism. It's the same thing I call transhumanism. Humanism is the sort of the abstraction of human nature into this thing that's not localized and not embodied. And that, to me, has been the clear problem with the Civil War for a long time. 
is that it doesn't represent the states in union. It represents the creation of America. This nation... As a nation state unto itself. Yeah, and he was afraid... The shift from these United States to the United States. Yes, which is why whenever I I write, I try to refer to these instead of the. Because it's not supposed to be one country. Um, But so he... He he put some he had some policy prescriptions for how to kind of push back on some of this and he actually in like 1965 recommended that the constitution be amended so that the president just can't run for re-election so one term interesting in 1965 mean, he said you that you mean 1865 1865 he said that and you know it wasn't amended until 47 which we all know now because of stupid Ocasio Cortez. Wait, um, did she mention that? I didn't. I didn't. Hear yeah, that. she. And the thing is, this is such a this is such a classic example of what makes everything so stupid right now, because she was. She never. Oh, says, I know what you're referring to. When she was talking she, about she, how we had to amend, she made a factual error, right? Yeah, Which yeah. we had to amend it to keep him from continuing to run for re-election. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is, technically, and he was—he already, he already, was already dead when it was passed. Yes, but it, it was actually instituted. It began while he was still alive. Oh, so it was going through ratification. And while it wasn't he was still alive. yet. So that was Newsweek's comeback. Was well, here's the full story. The full story. What she was saying was stupid anyway, because she was talking about how back in the day the Democrats couldn't be stopped, like. <laughs> We did everything. <laughs> and it's funny because I don't remember what Does I was... Does she really want to own FDR that closely? I don't know if she knows about the Japanese, but... <coughs> I mean, or that racist housing laws that were passed. FDR's legacy is extremely complicated. It's yeah. not... Yeah, yeah. It's not good. Um, but that that is the weird thing. It, that's why Jonah Goldberg wrote liberal fascism. It's because, like, somehow the American left literally blames the American right for all of their sins. Somehow the right is racist. Oh, yeah. And yet the Democrats, which to be fair, left and right is actually not a great way to describe Democrats and Republicans because the parties have switched their well yeah so a lot of a lot of southern democrats became republicans in the 80s with reagan and things like that <coughs> well yeah and technically the republicans were the progressive party until really until coolidge i mean they were oh, yeah. extremely oh, yeah. progressive the yeah. civil war was they were, very they were, progressive they were associated with with new england elites yeah, yeah exactly yeah i mean you even see that into our own day that the bushes yeah. were all from new england originally Oh, they were. Oh, yeah, they're they're they're, they're, um, they're transplants. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, George Bush Senior and um, Barbara never lived in Texas, as far as I understand. And, and, except maybe at the very end of their lives. But the family, the Bush family home, is in like is in Maine. Is it really? It's somewhere in New England. Uh-huh. Like they have a big, they have a like a Kennedy S compound in New England somewhere. They're New Englanders. That kind of explains why they're not very conservative as a family. I mean, it's like they weren't... They're Episcopalian, traditionally. Oh, are they really? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, George was senior and and Barbara were buried in the Episcopal Church. And and as far as I know, um, I don't think think W, like, identifies as an Episcopalian anymore, but he was raised an Episcopalian. 
because I think Laura is a Methodist or something like that. Huh. She's a comes from a little bit more evangelical background, but well, that was why I did that post because I like in the Philippines the president is only I what I said was we should probably just amend the constitution so that the term is a little bit longer, but there's only one of them. And like in the Philippines, it's only six years. It's, so it's like a senator. You get elected here. to one six-year term, and then you're done. And the pro- here's the problem with. I mean, it. what's the what's the? I I'm, I guess I, I'm wondering, what would be the benefit of that versus just sticking with the two-term limit because that's essentially a term limit. It's just like you have like. I mean, most, at least in the past half century most presidents have been reelected to a second term yeah. so it's almost like our midterm elections are just like a, or not midterms but our presidential elections after a first term are just kind of like a almost a midterm like check to see like so do you think it's because it's eight years and that's too long or like what's the i just i think there's a okay so the problem the only reason i made the post was just so i could put a bunch of Orestes brownson quotes out there <laughs> So I just liked the the fact. I was just really impressed with the fact that he was recommending that in 1865. That is pretty interesting. Um, because the country doesn't even seriously deal with it. I don't think they ever thought it was going to be a problem. Like I don't think that anyone well, believed you would want to be president that long. Yeah, exactly. And well, the other thing I was just thinking about is too is this, um, uh, up until the up until the 20th century and FDR. I think I don't think. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if running for a third term, with maybe the exception of Wilson, even ever occurred to any of the presidents before FDR. Did Wilson run for a third term? No, no, no. He could no, he didn't. Um, but he because he died, he died in office. But oh, I'm saying I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it occurred that. to him because of how progressive he was. But my point was, I wouldn't be surprised if every president with, before FDR, with the exception of Wilson never even countenanced it because of Washington's precedent that he set. Yeah, it was just Because it was custom. very clear Washington did not run for a third term even though people wanted him to. Yeah. He could have been yeah. king at one point. Well, technically he was. Well, just because of his power and influence? I mean, or? have you seen some of the stuff that they got rid of at the beginning in referencing to the majesty Well, I know he was there. Of the presidency? Well, the style, the first suggested style for the president was going to be His Excellency, the President of the United States. And he was kind of like, Mr. Mister President will do. Well, and even like... Um, the more I find out about Washington, the more I just like idolize that guy. Yeah, he was, he was, yeah. He was, he was a god, man. Yeah. I mean, the only the it's funny because he actually may have been infertile. No, yeah, yeah. Which he, I only know because they mention it in in the Unslung Lullabies book. They're like, you know, if, you know, it's 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 hard to deal with uh, you know manliness and infertility and stuff. But here's some examples of people that very well may have been infertile. The first one they list is Washington, and then they give the reasoning. It's because you know she was of. She was still of childbearing age when they got married, and they didn't have any kids of their own. They just had yeah. her her children. So, and I don't think there's any evidence that I don't think there's any evidence he slept with the slaves. Is there? No, not that I've heard. So he I mean, he was also um, among southern slave slave owners. He actually had a reputation for being very good to his slaves. Yeah. Like all his all his slave cuz I I was at I was actually at um I was at Mount Vernon last year in May and it was my first time visiting and we m- me and my wife went and did the whole tour and everything and it's interesting cuz they actually have living historians there 
like on the on the site and they have kind of a away from the away from the house they have like a kind of a makeshift farm set up it wasn't where an actual farm would be but like at the time but they they kind of lay it out to way the, the way it would have looked at the time and they have like a they have a slave cabin and they had a living historian there who was talking to people about the way slaves would have lived and things like that and um the historian mentioned that there was a a um, particular slave who he had he was married and had a family and his wife and children worked on the farmland and he worked up at the at the mansion house and he would walk down which at that point was i think three miles he'd walk down every saturday afternoon and spend saturday evening and sunday with his family down on the farm area and then walk back to the um, mansion house on sunday night or monday morning and i asked him i said well i said did the slaves have sunday off and he said yeah they all the slaves had sunday off um and i said was that typical of southern slave owners at the time he said no that wasn't typical hmm. so that i that i found really interesting well i'm like i was kind of surprised to find out how brutal frederick Douglass's life was when you actually read his personal account because he lived in the north he was a slave in the north i think he i think he lived in like i think he was a town slave in like massachusetts or something like that oh interesting i can't remember the details but i was a couple years ago when i was tutoring a kid at um at the the korean tutoring company that little kyle and i used to work at i was reading through it and i was just struck by a how many things he corroborates that you know i think a lot of us don't like to think about anymore um that douglas corroborates like what like what for example oh just you know the brutality of it's so much of the evil of that system wasn't really about like the grosser aspects that we think of like the whippings and and the rapes and and stuff like that it it was really more the fact that thomas soul thomas soul has this famous quote where he talks about how the black family withstood slavery better than it withstood uh the great society oh that's interesting and the way that he parses the 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 statement I don't know if he would write it the exact same way because it really sounds like he's saying that the black family was fine under slavery. But the the thing that's most insidious is the way that they mm-hmm. like, like he Douglas talks about how he didn't know who his mother was. Oh, so they weren't usually when it's depicted now i think it's usually depicted as if um like in films and stuff i think it's usually depicted as if these people basically lived in little family units on the plantations yeah i don't think that was i mean that might have been common in some areas I but think, yeah, families were split up all the time yeah and that's the thing that's most disturbing about douglas's account because he does actually i think he does actually find out who his mom is and secretly he's able to go like be with her a couple of times and then somehow that ends too but yeah that's the thing that is to me that's the thing that's the most disastrous because brutal forms of slavery slavery is always brutal it's never 
like nice but in the past but like chattel slavery is a, was a new br- level of brutality i think compared to well, historic forms of it may, maybe cuz i was bringing this up with Casey Richardson this the guy who wrote that book on uh the uh, christian care for the poor in the early church and he's gonna he should be on this podcast sometime this month or, or actually the podcast with kyle um sometime this this month but oh that's cool um i was uh, i was bringing that up with him because there just is no biblical condemnation of slavery and there's implicit condemnations of it it's really not see this is so how Phile- this is, philemon philemon he actually and revelation he actually, and philemon philemon is does not help us on this because he's pretty clear that he's wronged his master so he also i mean he also he also set, tell, tells philemon that he could command him to yeah like basically release his slave and let him but he doesn't stay with paul sure and the, the reason that he's I think, saying well, I, that i don't even think philemon's the strongest one to me the strongest one has always been the litany of the sins that of babylon in the book of revelation when when the merchants are weeping over babylon because it's been overthrown and it's it's giving a list of the things that were bought and sold in babylon and then at the very kind of end of the list saint john has the merchants like or saint john actually kind of, i think it, i'm trying to remember the exact quote but he gives like a interpretive like comment on it but it it says like um and in her were sold bought and sold um human or bought and sold slaves and then there's like a parenthetical note that is human souls which seems to be a pretty strong condemnation of at least the slave trade because it's giving a litany of things that basically cried out to god for babylon to be destroyed like utterly maybe i mean the the truth is that in a society where there is no way to acquire capital that's not ill-gotten the only capital you have is yourself so it's actually fundamentally not that different from work now like most of us have no way to generate wealth without working yeah, we so you, we sell our labor. Yeah, you basically exactly you sell your labor, and back in the day you you sold yourself, and that's the only option most people had. So I I mean just given the economic circumstances, it's hard to. In any case, well, I mean I agree I agree with you fundamentally that it's it it's not a primary, um, like the New Testament is not concerned with condemning slavery. Like as an institution, I think what it, I think what's what's going on is Christian morality undermines the foundations of slavery in a really radical way that take a while to manifest themselves. Yeah, and I mean, and one part of the deal too is that in the old covenant, slaves actually had to be treated in specific ways, and they had to be released after a certain period of time so, unless they covenanted with their master to continue as a slave. Yeah, and see, the weird thing about that is I just don't understand what the goal in that society, what the goal of that would have been then. What the goal of, like... Of, of being freed, because unless you had a way, I guess they could be saving money. 
I think they I usually think remember, received a wage. I think yeah, they they received something at the end of there because I think it was traditionally like in the law of Moses, it was seven years, and it if I remember correctly, somewhere in the law it says that upon release they have to be given a certain amount of provision. Oh, they didn't for, receive a wage. I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think it was a wage. I think it was. It wasn't like a for so many years of service they get X they, amount of. They got a. They got something. Huh. Um, That's interesting. I mean, I don't know. It, well, in any case, um, those forms of slavery. See, because that that was always what I said. Like a, a friend of ours who shall not be named um, was uh, flirting with uh, alt whiteism a few years ago and this was always <laughs> the first talking about yeah this was always the first thing he would bring up is well you know the bible doesn't have any problem with slavery and my retort at the time and my retort for years has been the bible's okay the the, the bible's not condemning uh the specific form of african slavery of the atlantic slave trade because it doesn't exist yet yeah, and that's actually not a great argument. I think the bigger the, the more you don't think that's a, I think that I think that's a, there's something to that argument. S- though. See, when I, I mean, if it was true, but when I brought this up with Richardson, he said honestly, any any way that we can, um, any any, so the brutality of slavery in the first century, in some ways, makes the Atlantic slave trade not even look that bad. Really? See, in David, like in, what, in what ways, though? Like the stuff you could do to your slave, legally. Oh, in the like in the Roman Empire. Yeah, they. I mean, it was bad. It was brutal. Yeah. Very brutal. They did not have real rights. Some of them did. In some, some of this stuff, it's hard to make like real pronouncements about everything. But the point is, it's it's almost. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like what Buckley says about capitalism. The problem isn't capitalism, it's capitalists. <laughs> yeah. The problem with slavery isn't really slavery. It's the slave owners. Yeah. Like bad masters make for horrible slavery. And I think the main the I think the main difference is that I'm pretty sure they had it depended on the slave. I mean, if you were a eunuch, you didn't have a family, but um I think they had families. Like they could marry and have families, I think. Yeah, because that's it, what most people were with yeah. slaves. And in the Roman Empire, they're or farmers. Yeah, and and the Roman Empire, as far as I understand it, a, a slave could marry somebody, and his his spouse, his or her spouse, and their children weren't necessarily slaves because of that. Yeah, I think like, that's right. They had, they, there were there were laws about about marriage um, according to station. So you couldn't like you know a plebeian couldn't marry a patrician, mm-hmm. but a plebeian who was enslaved could probably marry a plebeian who wasn't enslaved, and just because he was a slave doesn't mean she was, and their yeah. children were. So there, you don't get this generational thing like going on. Yeah, and that's really the thing that met, that's messed up about the U.S. slave experience was that it was something you were born into that you yeah. had to be set free from and it was based just on the color of your skin. Yeah. It wasn't even sophisticated enough to be about like your blood. Yeah. You know. Well, you know what's funny about that too is is it originally, I mean 
the, uh, there's a lot of historians that taught that that argue that the evidence demonstrates that that um, racism arose in the American context as a post hoc justification for the already existing practice of African slavery. Yeah, it would have had to. Yeah, unless it was. Which is yeah crazy when you think about it because. That's that that I mean that that really gives credence to the view that 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 sl- American slavery is dehumanizing of both, obviously the slaves, but also yeah the masters, because it, it it's teaching that it's like it's predisposing them to believe something that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. No, Tocqueville actually said that that was the reason that the South was awful. He the the existence of slavery was was a. This is Thomas Sowell spends a ton of time debunking Tocqueville specifically on this point because Tocqueville basically thought it was a moral problem with the South that slavery was a corrupting influence on everyone. So, because slavery, people don't realize now because they they make it a capitalist thing. Like, there's literally whole books about how the foundations of capitalism were based in the Atlantic slave trade, and the truth is that slavery is extremely expensive yeah and ex- and very bad at producing uh, cost effective outcomes yeah it's a horrible system from a capitalist perspective yeah you're basically paying for this is one of the reasons it also why only makes sense in a pre-industrial or at least a yeah a, a early industrial society yeah which is what the south was i mean they didn't yeah they would that's why it disappeared it, dis- it disappeared in the north yeah yeah they wouldn't industrialize that was the thing that was the main reason that people like calhoun were holding on to their conservative principles because they saw the decadence that was going on in the north which to us doesn't seem that decadent but at the time the writing was already kind of on the wall that capital what capitalism does this produces decadence yeah it produces materialism and decadence and it undermines traditional values and yeah so that's why people like calhoun were defenders of their way of life and calhoun you know believed that the africans simply weren't ready for freedom freedom was an achievement it wasn't a life it wasn't a right so okay you had to be able to be free in order to be free but did he, i mean how would the southern slave system ever produce a uh, black community that would be that would achieve that though that's you could have designed it in such a way that it could have but, yeah, but they that didn't wasn't what they wanted they yeah. wanted to still have slaves and it's it's funny because soul spends so much time debunking tocqueville on this point because of all the similarities between can you not put your sorry between um you can take your shoes off if you want between uh uh, i might need to run real quick i'm just kidding (laughs) who knows when the popo is going to show up um (laughs) do you want to do you want another drink sorry yeah actually let's just take a quick break okay so that the audio is more manageable though much is taken much abides And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. 
And what we are is conservative. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the New Worlders podcast. Lord Salisbury infamously said to delay his life. Join us again next time as we fight the long defeat in our little platoon. God bless.